Hello there, Vlad here. Welcome to Cat Big Friday's episode. I can't have to cheat. 29. So we're one shot of 30, which is kind of crazy. And technically it's 29 plus 4, so this could be 33. I might have promised that I'm not going to talk about the episode numbers anymore, but here we are. It's a tradition. You can have whole traditions, I guess. Once again, I'm joined by Mr. Richard Morgan, who might be feeling a bit tired because he was live streaming the whole evening yesterday. Hello. Good morning. Yes, a busy <laughs> night last night on the old Blue Guitar channel. We did a special episode, actually, which um, which was originally supposed to be like a Q&A with Thomas. Thomas Blue, the founder and main man behind Blue Guitar. And we also, at the start, thought that we would just do a very short segment where we talked a little bit about the fact that the NAMM show 2022 has been postponed. And we have officially decided that the amp that we would launch in January at NAMM is now also going to be postponed until June next year. And of course, everyone's very excited about this amp. So we then spent the next uh, almost an hour talking about that amp before we got into the questions section. <laughs> and that meant that the whole thing went quite late that i had to do some other stuff with him unload some gear from the 42 gear street event and then i had to drive home and got back very late and decided to switch my alarm off this morning but i'm still tired so but i made it yeah that's the most important thing yeah thank you for still making the time taking the time making the time one of those to be here with us and I'm going to throw a link into that to that live stream. I watched it for a little bit, and it was interesting. And as I kind of mentioned in the comments of your live stream, uh, the summer trip you are planning at at least right now sounds pretty damn amazing. So, to Nam and stuff that like sounds, that. That is. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah. about what the, what the plans are. But if it happens, it would be great. But we shall see. Definitely. Anyway, I want to mention that, oh, like, thank you guys for listening, subscribing, liking, commenting, stuff like that. And as always, this episode is available both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and on the Podbean app as well. And obviously on here on YouTube as well, where you get the, you get to enjoy our beautiful faces every week as well. And I mentioned last week that there might be something uh, happening, uh, like questions and comments-wise. And yes, you indeed can now email us, podcast at catpicstudios.com. Send your questions there. I, I think we can promise these people a bit more anonymity, because like if you comment on a YouTube video, everyone else can see it. But if you want to ask, ask us some like questions you might think are like noob questions, for example, and yeah, like if you got any questions relating gear, music, maybe even YouTubing, feel free to email us. Please don't send any like weird links or attachments or anything like that. I'm not going to open those just for security reasons. But otherwise, uh, really excited to see what you lovely people will be sending us. And in this episode, we're going to dive into a bunch of uh, gear that feels like feels like like after a few like post summer episodes, it was like fairly quiet. But 
there's a lot of happening. There's a Fender Player Plus guitar series. There's some wireless MIDI controller projects going on. John Petrucci came out with an eight-string music man, which by the time this episode has aired, is already sold out, actually. And Solo Guitars has a Patrick Jensen signature guitar. There's a Keeley compressor. There's a Fender Acoustasonic Paisley guitars. Rich is going to share his album of his li live, not lives. It's just one live. I, I don't know I'm where I'm not a cat with this. I think I've only got one. <laughs> yeah, unless you're a cat. So yeah, that's true. And then there's also a couple of cool questions slash comments. And we are also going to dive into the weekend watch and talk about something uh, uh, like frequent feature Rick Piatto has posted. Um, I gotta say, it's probably my favorite video from him ever. So that's that. I think me too. But, yeah, he's on fire at yes. the moment. Yeah, definitely. And oh, by the way, I, I should uh, advertise that we actually have an ad here as well this week. Kind of. You'll f find out why I'm saying kind of in just a bit. But I think it is time to dive into recent happenings right away and get going. Oh, look at me! I managed to make the whole thing work and we are obviously going to start with the Fender Player Plus series. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Rich is applauding me. Uh, I, I kind of deserve it in a way, if you will, because I tend to mess this up. But, yeah, moving on to the actual article, we are quoting uh, GuitarWorld.com and it says Fender launches all new Player Plus electric guitar and bass models with fresh finishes and switching options. And basically they are launching, I think it was four different strats, then there was four different tellies, <laughs> then there was at least one precision bass, <clears throat> excuse me, and then there was a jazz bass as well, or was there actually two of them? Let me quickly check. Yeah, there's two different versions. And these are made in Mexico, but they are kind of uh, pricier than you might usually expect from... Uh, <laughs> yeah, made in Mexico, uh, sold at US prices. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Though I have to say the specs look pretty darn impressive there's like rolled edges on the fingerboard and uh, which kind of gives you that kind of played in feel and also just it's just so much more comfortable to play when they there's rolled edges uh i think they redesigned the noiseless pickups uh, on all of these guitars because people have had oh, have they? okay yeah uh i think i checked out like an anderton's video or something and they mentioned that these are like actually redesigned so it's if people had some issues with uh, previous ones, these apparently are new, but I reserve the right to be wrong here. I might have just misread it somewhere. But I gotta say, this looks nice. Yeah, so where do you think that these sit within the overall Fender range? Because for the past couple of years, we've had the player guitars, which are like the most affordable full fat Fender guitars made in Mexico and in European prices they're about what five six maybe seven hundred 
So, you know, within the reach of most players, I would say. We also have the Noventa series, and we have a bunch of different American series. I assume most of which have been discontinued as we talk, but the most affordable of those was the American Performer. Yeah. And those guitars were around the same price as these Player Plus guitars. So I'm actually quite confused as to where these sit within the Fender canon. <laughs> yeah, I definitely get that. To me, they seem to be like, uh, if I take a look at Ibanez, they have the Indonesian-made ones, which are like around 1,000-ish euros or so, maybe slightly a bit more. Uh, to me, these kind of feel like they fit into that range. So it's like kind of pro level specs, but uh, still like fairly affordable. Though I don't know what's the different like surprise difference between one of these compared to like an American made one. Uh, I'm not too familiar with all of the like different price ranges Fender has. Yeah, you know what? Maybe maybe I'm placing too much emphasis in my head on the importance of where they're built. Because actually, mm. at the end of the day, what's the difference between being built in Mexico and being built in America? Is it that much of a difference? Yeah. I don't know. My, I mean, my, my favorite Telecaster be. is a Mexican standard from yeah. seven years ago. So <laughs> Yeah, that, you know. that's the thing I like. Uh, the Strat I bought from Tolman a few years ago was also Mexican-made. And it was like a thousand-ish euros price range. And I never felt like, oh, this is way too much for a Mexican Strat, putting that in quotes, because it just felt great. It was really well built. And it was just too vintage for me with its 7.25-inch radius. But otherwise, like... That was a road-worn yeah. Strat, wasn't it, yours? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these ones, the Player Plus... I would say are far less traditional than some of the yeah. other ranges that we have. And I think the key thing there is the finishes that you have. You know, there's no yeah. two-color sunbursts, Fiesta red or black. Well, I mean, you can get some plain colors, but we've got a selection of very eye-catching designs. And I think a few which might be quite divisive. Yeah. So we're just flicking through the screen. There's a silver burst, HSS Strat. There is a beautiful, I don't know even how to describe that color. What's that finish called? Calls, that's it's, like a tequila sunburst, or like a burst or fade, something like that. I think that's how some people oh, is it tequila it. sunrise? Because uh, I was going to say, yeah, it, that's true. it looks like a cocktail to me. Yeah. It's just <laughs> red that transitions to yellow slash orange. It's yeah, a beautiful guitar, like but it. I can imagine, you know, some players yeah. will really be put off by the looks and some will love it. That's yeah, but tide pool blue is it? It's not quite Lake Placid blue. Uh, yeah, but you can I see mean, also from the pictures, by the way, that there are not rosewood fingerboards on these. They're Palferro or Laurel, right? Uh, I th I remember seeing this. Uh, you can get it with either either maple or rosewood fingerboards. So there you go. Those pictures are not rosewood boards. They can't be. It has to be the Harley Benton photographer effect here as well. Ah, that's what it is, yeah. I'm going to have a look <laughs> on the Fender site right now, actually, just to... Uh, yeah. I mean... But if it, but if they're rosewood, they need a good oiling. 
But if they are yeah, rosewood, that's that's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that these colors are a bit less traditional, but then again, I think the whole guitar goes for a bit, bit more modern vibe anyway because of the fingerboards edges. Yeah. And these have 22 frets instead of yeah. 20, 21. Uh, then the tremolo system is actually two-point, which I personally like quite a lot. It just feels a bit different, and you can actually like use it a bit more, in a way, I want to say. So there's that, yeah. and yeah, a bit more modern finishes, stay, not stay, stainless steel, noiseless pickups, stainless steel pickups. That would be a stainless new thing. Stainless steel, yeah. noiseless pickups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Teflon pickups in the tele models. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, I'm just, so yeah, just like, to confirm, pickups. I am on the Fender website and it is Pau Ferro. The, the darker fingerboards are not Rosewood. So oh, really the light is. that we're so looking at, world. is that Music Radar? They've got that flat wrong, guitar unfortunately. World. So Guitar World. Well, yeah, same company. So there you go. They are yeah, Pau Ferro okay. boards. But I would recommend yeah. anyone who's interested in these guitars to go to the Fender site and have a look because you can really see the... The beauty of some of those finishes, I'm just looking at the HSS Strat right now, and there is a three-color sunburst, which looks nice with a with a maple board, but there's also a cosmic jade, which is like a sparkling kind of bright green, which is, I think, beautiful. Would love to see it in the flesh. Then we've got a silver burst, which is awesome, and silver burst, of course, is hot right now. We all remember the Adam Jones tool. Gibson true. Les Paul Custom Guitar Saga. And then there is one called Bel Air Blue, which is right up my street. It kind of looks like you're at the beach. It's like it goes from mm. a, an almost sonic blue, sky blue, through to turquoise, through to a deep royal sea blue. So that's a beautiful guitar. Mm. I'm such a sucker for yeah. a finish that I like. You know, not even thinking about the rest of the specs or anything like that. I love that <laughs> Bel Air Blue finish. That's the one I'd buy. And that guitar is... 1100 euros so yeah what do you think about those prices Vlad I think you said you you find that quite affordable I mean I would love to try this out and like because it's Fender it will might actually be possible in Finland like I have a feeling like when you pick one of these up you will get a like a feeling of like a really solid guitar with good specs good hardware like there's locking tuners proper tremolos and stuff like that and as I mentioned, these come with 22 frets, so there's a little bit of modern touch there as well, noiseless pickups. And I think there was like even some switching options here, like not just the five-way <coughs> switch, but was there something else? Yeah, yeah, they do. So like the the HSS yeah. strats, you can split the humbucker. And in the three That's single nice. coil strats, you can pull up the, the second tone knob. And when you're on like the bridge mode and the the second position, you can also have the neck pickup active. So it gives you some very different, interesting sounds. And I would recommend anyone watching to watch the video by our good friend, Eirik from Living Room Gear Demos, because he actually was lucky enough to get one of these guitars in and he demos that sound. And it sounds great. Another thing that we didn't mention in terms of modern fittings is locking tuners. That's another cool feature. Yep. Man, I love this telly. This looks so weird. Like there's like a what from white to like black fade. It looks Kinda like looks a pint of Guinness. I like it. <laughs> and yeah, I'd I like, like a pint a of Guinness right now. That's a nice guitar. Oh, yeah. a Nashville telly. Yeah. That's the thing. Like they're definitely leaning into like super versatile 
like working musicians tools type of thing that's how that's the vibe i'm getting from this like and that's that's why at least based on the specs and in the videos i've seen like i feel the price is justified obviously like you gotta try one out to actually find out whether they feel and look like and perform well but i mean this looks also this looks great as well this is also like this bluish sparkle type of thing kind of excited i don't need a telly but i could you like wouldn't mind getting like some sort of strat and these are very tempting there's definitely less emphasis on the bass side so it seems oh a five string like tequila what what was it tequila sunrise jazz bass that's kind of cool is I there a p bass or is that. it just jazz uh, this uh, uh, there was a one P bass, but they don't have more. They don't have like additional pictures. There's just one four string, like is it like pearl or Olympic pearl? I guess is the color. Just one P bass, uh, yeah. which is actually not. Mm -hmm. a, it's like an active precision bass, but it also has like a jazz master pickup in it as well. Okay, so. interesting. So yeah, it's like you say they are focusing on making these instruments. Super versatile, you know, like yeah. the working guitar or bass that a musician can take out on stage and they only need that one instrument to do everything and they can rely yeah. on it too. Yep, I like this. Like, uh, It's really a cool addition to the range. Definitely. I, I just, the, the one thing that gets me still is the fact that you could pay a tiny little bit more and dip your toe into American-built Fender Territory or even buy, you know, American stuff used for less than what these cost. So yeah, in that sense, it's that going to be true. interesting to see how, how these go. But also, you know, look at those finishes. If you if you were tired of boring Strat, Tele and P and Jazz bass mm -hmm. finishes, this is going to be your thing. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, like looking forward to seeing more demos of these. Some of them, as you mentioned, have been kind of been popping up up on our YouTube feeds, and I'm guessing there will be a lot more as well. So, I would imagine so. Yeah, but it, yeah, it it is interesting. Like it's the same as with Indonesia made stuff. Like prices on those keep going up on like some of the products but also the specs go way up as well without those price increases so i guess it's uh like if you put a lot of emphasis on where the guitar is made then yeah i get it this feels weird like if the american ones are just a tiny bit more expensive but then again i don't know i'd, I'd be happy to like use one of the indonesian made ibanez guitars it's one of my main guitars. It was just super solid and felt like like an instrument you could trust to do well in any situation. So, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I I have mixed feelings on like which one would I get? Uh, maybe like a Strat, maybe even like an HSS Strat. But yeah, Moving yeah. On for to me, the it next would be an HSS which, Strat. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, moving on to the next thing, which is called Novatronic. 
Uh, they have an interesting, is it GoFundMe or one of these, like, uh, ah, Indiegogo project. And they are ba basically building this kind of wireless media system, which is kind of interesting and, to be honest, feels a bit niche. But the idea is basically that you have a MIDI pedal on your board that's connected to your MIDI devices you want to control. And then there's like a transmitter pack and that you integrate into your guitar and that you can actually like have a guitar, like you can, for example, take your tone pot and turn that into a MIDI wireless MIDI controller. So basically, uh, for example, if you set up your tone knob in a way you could use that to control the level of delay on your pedal or anything like that. Uh, interesting concept. I'm not sure how many people actually need this or want to have this, but it looks interesting. Like, if you are really doing something like special with uh, any kind of modulation effects or anything like that, this could be a thing. Like you could control your pedals via wireless MIDI using your guitar's tone control, for example. So I think this is an interesting concept. I'm not sure how many people are like genuinely interested in this, but it has been like backed by over 10% already. They are seeking for 40,000 euros. They have six, 6,500 right now. 22 days left. Yeah. Interesting concept. I'm guessing neither of us is uh, like the target group for this. Oh, by the way, I should mention there's two, like there's two options. So uh, if you have like a push-pull control, you can actually have like two different functions for that rotating knob. So that's kind of cool. So would you have to, if you wanted to use your tone control in collaboration with the Noatronic, does that mean that you would have to perform modifications to your guitar as well? I I believe you, surely that's you would the have case. to, right? Yeah, I think that's the case. And I yeah, think it's, it's also yeah, it's a really interesting product. I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think either of us is the target audience here. I think mm. it is definitely a niche thing, but obviously these guys have done a lot of research if you scroll down the indiegogo page you can see their timeline where they've mentioned all the surveys that they've done with people to mm. ask them what they wanted from uh, midi control and on stage capabilities etc there's a lot of information on that site and if you know what you want and what you want is something like this this is going to be the ideal thing but i do think it's uh it's not a mass market sort of a product I yeah. think a lot of people do enjoy using MIDI pedals. A lot of people do use presets, but we're all just kind of conditioned to use our feet to do that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. A, a very interesting idea, and I know a few people will find ways to make it sound very cool. And I would be interested to try one, but mm. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable modifying one of my guitars to, to have something like this. But yeah. what a cool idea. It yeah, will be interesting to see like, if they get 100% of their financing. I think they've got yeah. 22 days left and they need to find another 30, 35,000 euros. 
So yeah. fingers crossed for them that they do. Yeah, hopefully. Like I think that's the cool thing about these like Indiegogo and other kind of platforms for this type of stuff because uh, like I don't think a lot of companies would pick this up and like, oh, that's a cool idea. Let's mass produce it. Because even like if the, all of this is super successful, the like percentage of guitar players who would actually want to modify their guitars to make this work is tiny. Yeah, exactly. So. And we have also seen, you know, a few kind of guitar MIDI controllers kind of come and go without being massive successes of course because they're niche products anyway but do you remember for example the fishman triple play midi controller which must be yeah i remember the name at least almost what eight ten years old now and that was another idea another concept that was amazing in theory and i got to use it a few times because at the time i was working for jhs in the uk and fishman was distributed by by us in the UK. So we had some product training on the triple play. We got to hang out with Corey Congilio, an amazing guitar player and teacher who was also working for Fishman at that time. I don't know if Corey still does, but he he told us all about the triple play. And he was someone who could really get the most out of a device like that. You know, he was making it sound like different instruments. He was really making his guitar into a whole orchestra with that device. So that really gave him something that was more than just a six-string guitar. For me, it would just be a, a kind of a novelty thing that I would use to make weird noises, but it wouldn't complement my songwriting or anything like that, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, so fingers crossed that if this Noatronic gets the funding and can be made, it will it will stick around in the industry and have some staying power. Yep, let's hope so. And moving on to the next thing, and I know Rich is going to be super excited about this one. John Petrucci introduces an eight-string Ernie Ball Music Man Majesty guitar, and <laughs> it's been sold out already. They yeah, I, like... I bought them. I bought them all. <laughs> all <of> them. <laughs> yeah. So you bought They're all in my of them. bathroom so... right now. Nice. Mm. Just as art that's... for visitors, you know, when you go to the loo, you can just see my rack of Petrucci 8 strings. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really don't know what to say to that, to be honest. So let's talk about the guitar, because this is also the first multi-scale guitar Ernie Ball has ever put out. And I'm kind of, kind of interested why they are making the 8, or like a limited run, I think it was limited to 100 units. And it's been a couple of days since this was released, a day ago or so, and it's been sold out already. So I have a feeling there will be a production model coming out at some point. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there will be. I guess they just wanted to dip their toe into the water a bit and just test it out. Yeah. You know, we'll we'll build a hundred of these because, you know, we've never done an eight string before and we've never made it so crazy before. And if it does well, we'll build more. And was it two yeah. days that they sold out in the hundred? They're not cheap guitars. Yeah, might, might be even less than that. And so yeah. it absolutely makes sense that they do will they will do more. It, it looks like a very interesting instrument with different scale lengths on the treble and bass strings. And I don't know. Yeah, I, the... For me, I, I have nothing against eight strings at all. I just... Don't know how I would approach that guitar. 
Yeah. It looks so alien same, same to me, me, you know? Yeah, so much in the bass territory already that I'm not sure where I would use the eighth string for. Unless you don't actually have a bass player as some people, or like some groups do. So that's one option, yeah. obviously. Yeah. What's with the bridge? Because for those of you watching, you can see that Vlad's going through some images of the guitar and the bridge looks very unique. I think that's a custom bridge for this guitar as well. And I'm assuming that it needs to be extra strong to withhold the massive pressure of those yeah. strings on the long scale. Yeah, it has to be. And I think it there's kind also of looks like, like a, yeah, it looks like a modern like a version of an old ashtray bridge. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, to me, it also looks like it, it's made to protect you from not, like, scratching your hand against the, like, saddles or whatever, like, bridge saddles yeah. or anything like that. Okay. Uh, because, like, the whole Patricia guitar design is, like, it's meant to make the guitar incredibly comfortable and just kind of out of out of the way, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about the ergonomics. Um, and the yeah. nut looks interesting as well from that close-up of the headstock that you just brought up yeah has to be some sort of compensated nut to make it like play in tune as much as possible like the kind of a fanet friend thing and then like the nut and everything um, my guess would be like Petrucci is probably pretty like strict about like tuning or like intonation and stuff like that so if he has the chance to make guitar like this he would probably do that and also it has yeah, exactly. all the piezo stuff as well on it. Like eight-string piezo guitar sounds kind of interesting. I wonder how that like those sounds come out. Are there any videos or sound clips of this guitar that we can uh, take a look at some. yet? There's one where somebody's just yeah, like this. Called people just gen genting on it, and that's it. <laughs> right now, at least. I wonder if there will be more out at some point. So what were I mean, the prices kind of, have to of these hundred guitars? Sorry, what were the prices of these hundred guitars? I don't know actually. Does the article say something? Just limited to hundred pieces worldwide. Uh, price is I'm gonna say I'm gonna guess ah uh, forty two hundred dollars. <clears throat> so okay, I mean. It's a US-made music man, an eight-string, yeah. I think it makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I, it's still a lot of money. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been even more than that. So mm. it's still way, way more than I could personally ever imagine spending on a guitar. But, you know, it's top-of-the-range stuff. Like you said. And it has two more Petrucci strings. himself has... Yeah, exactly, two extra strings. And Petrucci himself has... <laughs> very high kind of quality threshold levels and they've gone for the best of the best for these hundred. Be interesting to yep. see if they do some more affordable versions down the line. Yeah. I, I imagine like a sterling version of this in like thousand-ish euros price range could sell a lot as well. So that, Yeah, I think, I'm not really aware uh, of made in Korea if there's other eight strings out there for that price. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, I, I love the mystic dream finish because it's like, it's kind of purplish, but then on some angles it looks pink or blue or purple. And yeah, 
his first ever signature music man was in this finish as well. So it's kind of cool they're bringing it back for this one. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's yeah. it's totally out of my comfort zone. It's totally not, you know, my personal thing, but I don't dislike it at all. You know, I'd really like to give it a go. Mm. And as yep. you said in a previous episode that we did, I think it was one of the summer ones with Irik where we picked our favorite guitars or something. You talked about the ergonomics of it and the fact that it looks totally alien and yet it feels so comfortable to play because that's the Petrucci thing. It's all yep. about the ergonomics. And I bet that that is the easiest to play eight string that you can buy. That that was like my first thought when I saw this. Like, this is probably the only eight string I would be able to play. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully one day I'll get to try one of these out. That would be a lot of fun. I don't see myself getting one, but you never know. So, that's that. All right, moving on to the next thing. We just have to mention solo guitars because solo guitars is kind of a big deal nowadays, I'm going to say. Just because mm -hmm. a lot of people, A, buy them, and a lot of people play them. Like, a lot of artists play them as well. And, okay, this one, um, Ola, if you don't know, Solo Guitars is owned by Ola England, a very big YouTuber in our small guitar YouTuber universe. And he's also bandmates with Patrick Jensen, so... This is kind of an inside job, so to speak. But, I mean, that's a very, very, very metal-looking guitar. <laughs> it sure is. It's like you, their take on an Explorer, but even pointier. <laughs> yeah. It's true, like, every angle of this guitar is pointy. It actually Which really, is... really reminds me of a, a Chapman Ghost fret. That's true, which comes also in very <clears throat> similar finish options. It's like a, it starts off black and it fades to like a burgundy blood red sort of a color. As does the headstock, yeah. which is a very nice touch. Yeah. Uh, I personally, like, I'm not a huge fan of the, like, fret inlays on this. Feels a bit too busy. I kind of would love the understated version of this where it's like, there's just this solo logo at the 12th fret and like maybe small dots or even no dots, just side markers, for example. But that's just a personal thing. Yeah, they call it an impact wave design. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's a busy guitar. That's the thing. There's a lot yeah. going on with it. I think it looks all right. The, Again, you know, for the... Yeah? For the metal crowd, for fans of bands like The Haunted, this is going to be a pretty awesome thing to check out. Yeah. And it's for $1,400. And this, I think these are also made in Indonesia. But uh, from what I've heard, at least, Solo Guitars has a fairly strict QC. So like every guitar that mm -hmm. uh, you buy is actually checked by someone in Europe before it goes out. So that's really cool. Okay. And it has yeah. Fishman Fluence pickups in it and an ebony yeah. board. And so that, that's two cool features for me. Yeah, and also has, the, yeah, it has the Evertune bridge as well. So tune it once and you're good to go. I still haven't tried a single Evertune <laughs> exactly. bridge. I want to try it out. It sounds such, like such a weird concept. 
was also kind of awesome. Yeah, you need to. So, yeah. Lot of solo artists already. And from, from like pretty big bands as well. So, that's cool. Moving on to the next thing. Keely Compressor Mini is out. And I'm actually kind of excited about this one. This is the kind of compressor I like. I'm, I'm a simple man and I want my compressors to be simple as well. <laughs> and with two knobs and a tiny footprint, this is definitely that. And based on the demo video I watched on guitarworld.com where we're checking the article as well, this is just that simple, effective, does what a compressor has, to, like you want compressor to do and the price is also pretty small. What's the price on here? Yeah, $129. And I actually really dig the limited white edition of this. This I have a soft spot for anything white when it comes to instruments or pedals. I don't know why. Maybe mm -hmm. because snow or something. But yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, but this yeah, is this like looks, right this, up my alley. Yeah, it looks like a great little pedal. I mean, the Keeley compressor, you know, the full-size pedal is like the industry standard. It's sold tens of thousands, and this is a smaller version for people who need the space. And you might think that it's limiting because it just has the level and compression knobs, but, you know, it's been designed that the rest of the stuff that you're missing off from the big pedal is kind of included in this pedal because it does it intelligently for you. So yep. if you remember on the larger Keeley compressor, you have a blend control, you know, which blends between the compressed signal and the original guitar signal. This one, the mini has an auto blend. So it does it for you. Things mm. like that. So everything is kind of in there for you. And it's a, it's a compressor pedal just to put on get the two knobs where you want them and forget about. And I think it's an always on sort of a pedal that you'll just leave there. And you might not realize what yeah. it's doing, but then suddenly you'll switch it off and go, aha, that is the magic of compression. So yeah, yeah, I like this pedal a lot. It's quite cheap, especially for an American built pedal. And I think it has probably some competition from the, the Wampler Ego Mini compressor, yeah. which is a great compressor as well. And is also small sized. In fact, a bunch of brands do smaller compressors but still the Keeley is the industry standard and I'm I'm looking forward to testing this one out because I think it's going to be really good and I like the black one better so maybe we can get one <laughs> of each you have the white one I'll take the black one yeah the, and then we'll have a shootout which sounds better because obviously exactly. the paint affects the sound it does yeah yeah uh, the OnePlus Mini Ego compressor was actually the one that I was kind of uh, thinking of right as soon as I saw this one because I've had the Mini compressor, like the OnePlus Mini <clears throat> Ego compressor, and that's easily mm -hmm. the best compressor pedal I've had. Just because of its simplicity, I think that has like three controls, plus there's like a switch, uh, which I think adjusted like the attack time. So mm -hmm. I think Brian explained in one of the videos, it was like basically like if you want to like, let's say alternate pick chords and just want a lot of sustain there's one setting and then if you want to do like funk stuff with like a fast attack to level out those chords and stuff then there's a second setting and it worked beautifully uh, this is even more simple and i'm actually kind of interested 
to hear like how it works in these different like types of situations where you might want to have a fast attack or a slow attack but i'm guessing this will work just fine based on the demo on guitarworld.com or like official keely video it it does both really really well mm -hmm. yeah i'm excited to try one the other key thing for me with compressors is the noise threshold like i find quite a few compressor pedals add a lot of noise to your signal you know obviously the more you turn them up as well and previous experience i've had with the keely and also with the wampler has been that they're very quiet so if this one is quiet too then it's going to sell bucket loads just like the the full size one yep 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 uh i'm trying to think whether there's a keely dealer in finland not sure need to check out because i kind of want to swap my current compressor pedal which i like but it's huge and way too complicated <laughs> like i sometimes I just get frustrated with it i need something very simple and yeah i'm a simple man all right moving on to a guitar that rich has also already ordered because we're talking about the fender acoustasonic telecaster paisley edition there's a pink and a black one and I'm guessing you've ordered both. Yep, two of each, just to make sure. <laughs> These are interesting, you know. I would still love to know who's buying the Acoustasonic guitars. I, I really, I'm yet to meet someone who owns one, who wasn't one of the million YouTubers who was given one <laughs> to make a video. <laughs> But yeah, they must be selling the well. They must be good. They must be doing things in the real world. But again, this summer I've seen a few, you know, outdoor concerts here in the region or whatever and have yet to see a single Acoustasonic anywhere. Yeah. It's weird. But these look interesting. I love Paisley. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Paisley guitars. And I think the black one is kind of cool. I think it looks better than the, um, you know, the natural wood versions of this guitar. The pink one, I know yeah. what they're going for. Obviously, it's the pink Paisley Telly look, but it's a bit, I don't know, it, it doesn't sit that well with me. It's not as awful as some people are saying it is, but <laughs> it's an acquired taste, I think. Yeah, it makes it Which look one a bit... would you go for? Probably, probably the black one as well, because it's like... But the pink one looks, I don't know... if. I'm sorry if somebody is offended by this, but it looks like a kid's guitar a little bit. Like, it's very, like, bright. Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you yeah. remember the the Daisy Rock guitar brand? Yes, I do. Yeah, now that you said that, that's exactly the kind of what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and Daisy Rock is kind of marketed towards girls and women players more, and... They have a yeah. lot of guitars that are in very bright colors, and there are some pink ones and some sparkly ones too. And it reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah, the black one on the Anton's website looks really nice. It's also not, not cheap. It's £1,850, so 2,000-ish euros or so. So it's uh, way more expensive than a regular Acoustasonic Tele or a Jazzmaster or a Stratocaster. But then again, it's a special edition, and apparently it's a limited run, and I think the black one is limited to Europe, and the pink one is limited to US. 
according to the article at on guitarworld.com. Ah, okay. Interesting. <clears throat> so there's that. Uh, I do kind of like, I have like, I don't have my acoustic jazz master anymore for, well, several reasons, but I do kind of miss that guitar. Like there was a video recently on Warren Hewitt's channel, so produced like a pro. And he like he has this thing. He when he does his Q and A, he has like a guitar of the week or something like that on his channel. And he mm -hmm. showed the acoustic jazz master, and he mentioned something that I had thought about before already. Like when I had mine, and I think I might have mentioned that in the demo as well. But like it's a fantastic guitar to like double track. Uh, or like double electric guitar riffs because it feels more like an electric guitar to play but then you get the acoustic sounds and one of the production tools or like tricks to make your riffs sound more like huge is to double those with an acoustic guitar there's a great video on iRig's channel so Living Room Gear Demos channel about that as well and it makes a huge difference I've used that trick as well on many of the songs and when you get an acoustic guitar, which is which feels like an electric guitar to play, it's great for that kind of stuff. But and it like the Jazzmaster one, I had just had bunch of great different acoustic guitar sounds as well. So it would would be fun to use it live as well. But yeah, I also can understand the argument that you can get an a good electric guitar and an acoustic guitar for that money as well. So. Yeah, I mean, you could get one of the new Fender uh, Player Plus electrics and still have seven or 800 euros left for a decent, you know, <laughs> mid-price performance acoustic for the stage, if that's what you wanted, you yep. know, or if you were just playing at home a decent, you could probably get an all-solid wood acoustic for that price if you shopped around or went secondhand. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an acquired that's taste, thing. this guitar. I'm really interested to see this one in a store or in the wild somewhere and, and try it out for myself because it looks, I don't know. We've seen a few of the things this week where it's like guitar and something else mashed together to create this thing, which is the instrument that we both play, but it's it's totally different. It's like an evolution of the yep. guitar. And I think Fender is definitely at the forefront of pushing its traditional designs forward. You know, this is the kind of thing we wouldn't see Gibson doing. After yep, the fire, but definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say well, we wouldn't see Gibson doing successfully at least. Shots fired, <laughs> pew pew, boom. Yeah, boom, exactly. But yeah, there's that, and now is a great time to take a quick break and hear from one of our. Can we say sponsored? Is that a sponsor? Maybe. Uh, you might have heard me mention the songwriting course quite a lot of times in my videos, and that's a great way to sponsor us. And we thought we might actually run a segment or like a clip here to let you know what that course is about. And we'll be back after this message. Have you ever experienced this? Man, I really should make a song out of this.
Man, I really should make a song out of this. What you just saw is pretty much most of my music career in a nutshell. I don't think we usually struggle to come up with ideas, but turning those ideas into actual songs is where we fail. But not anymore, because now there's a new course that will help you get songs done. Get Songs Done is a songwriting course that breaks down the songwriting process into smaller, easily understandable steps that take you from your initial idea into a fully written song. And because this is a songwriting course for busy people, I've designed it in a way that whether you have 30 minutes or 3 hours at your disposal, you will always know what to do next. I'm not telling you what to write, but I am telling you how to structure your songwriting process so you can get songs done. This is fun, I want to try it again. Cats, not dogs. But I don't want only to talk the talk, I also want to walk the walk. Is that how the saying goes? To demonstrate how this songwriting method works, I will actually throw myself into the fire and write a song during this course by using the Get Songs Done method. And to challenge myself even more, I'm going to write the song in a style I've never actually done before. Let's just say the song will be rather epic. The only requirements for this course are that you know the basics of your DAW and you know how to record with it. If you are new to mixing, I will show you some absolute basics that you can use to make your song sound more exciting right from the start. And because most of us are not multi-instrumentalists, I will teach you how to work with other people and demonstrate how that can be done remotely as well. And I'm still not done. There's also a nice PDF included that has the breakdowns of every single lesson in this course that you can print out and you can have your songwriting process at hand at all times. I know having a printable PDF doesn't sound exciting, but trust me, it really helps. There are two versions of the course, Standard and VIP. The Standard version of the course pretty much contains everything that I just mentioned. The VIP version has pretty much everything that the Standard version has, but you also get to submit your song for me to review. I will not only listen to your song, but I will actually capture my initial reactions to your song on a video and also give you constructive feedback that will help you get even better at your songwriting. So basically you're getting a personalized Vlad Reacts video and also some constructive feedback that's meant to help you grow as a songwriter. So join me by grabbing the copy of the course and we will get songs done. Alright, let's actually jump to a segment of, uh, I, don't, like, I don't know what the content of the segment will be because it's Rich's time to pick an album of his life or something like that. And yeah, let's jump there next. Like plastic on a CD shelf, these are the albums of our lives. So Rich's album of his life is what? <laughs> you know, this is a podcast as well. Yeah. Would you okay, please provide so, some audio as well? So the <laughs> album that I have selected to show today is At The Drive-In, Relationship of Command. Are you familiar with this record, Vlad? Uh, I'm afraid I'm not. Or it might be one of those albums where like, when I hear some of the songs, I'm like, oh, I know this. But okay. as well, an album, no, I'm not. 
Okay, as a first response, you should be. So go and listen to it immediately. Yes, I'm doing that right now. Recording this, as everybody else should who's watching, who who's not familiar with At The Drive-In. But I decided to choose this record this time because you've called this segment Albums of Our Lives. And I was like, well, where do I start? And this album was not released on the day I was born or anything like that. It actually came out in 2000. It came out in, I think... Early September 2000, so I would have been either 16 or 17 at the time that it came out. So I was really in a a phase of my life when I discovered guitar again massively. I was really into indie music and also pop music and also kind of getting into metal. And this is going to sound weird, but for the first time in my life, I'd also started to grow my hair long because I thought I could look like Kurt Cobain if I did that. Then I realized that photos. my hair was actually not quite straight enough to to give me a grunge haircut. And my hair went up instead of down. And I got bullied <laughs> a lot at school for having, you know, curly hair because I grew up in a parochial part of the UK where people thought it was funny to make fun of people who didn't have like a nice haircut or whatever. So yeah, that was my life as a 16-year-old. And then in the summer of 2000, Kerrang! the local rock metal magazine did an article on a band that was just coming up called At The Drive-In. And it's a, it was a post-hardcore band out of El Paso in Texas, which is right on the Mexico-USA border, made up of five guys. So you've got a, a vocalist, Cedric Bixler. You've got two guitar players, Jim Ward and Omar Rodriguez-Lopez. You've got a bass player whose name is Paul Hinojos and a drummer, Tony Hajar. It's good that I still know their names. That's a bit weird, but that was what they were called. And the singer Cedric and the one guitarist Omar, they had massive curly hair. They're Hispanic, Latino Americans, and they had huge afros. And I, I realized at that moment in time as a very impressionable 16-year-old that it's okay to look like this. So that made them a very important band to me straight away. And then I heard the record, Relationship of Command, and I fell in love with it straight away. Um, There was a single from the record, One-Armed Scissor, which I think you should know, Vlad, if you put it on. One-Armed Scissor by At The Drive, and that's their most well-known song. But it's a record with 12 tracks on it, and all of them are really, really good. It's post-hardcore, I would call it. It's a very chaotic sort of a sound that they make. The guitars are quite often out of tune. The energy is full on the whole time. A lot of it was recorded live and it's a very, very punk record as well. And actually Iggy Pop guests on a couple of the tracks. So that kind of adds to the punk attitude of it. But what what really sealed the deal for me was that in 2000, I'd just done my GCSEs as a 16 year old and my parents said, okay, you can, you can go to Reading Festival if you want. So I went to my first festival I squeezed into the tiny Carling tent to see these guys play and it just changed my life. It was chaotic and mad and probably awful, but there's no video proof that I've ever found of what it was like. And it just, it changed how I thought about music. I realized that things didn't have to be really polished. I realized that I didn't have to be in tune all the time. And I realized that I didn't have to be like a a virtuoso, you know, a great player to write good songs. And the songs on this record are what do it for me, along with the energy. So. If anyone's not familiar with the band, I would recommend you listen to the album all the way through because it works really well as a cohesive piece of work. But 
If I was to pick out three or four tracks, I would say the first song, which is called Arc Arsenal, which kicks off the record, is just a perfect introduction to add the drive in. It starts with a nice little maraca and then the guitars kick in and the guitars are often quite distorted, but the, the players use chorus and phaser effects quite a lot to kind of make it sort of a very tense sounding record as well. So it, it goes into that straight away and it just it ends in chaotic madness and that is what is to come afterwards then comes a song called pattern against user and then one arm scissor those are both quite accessible a couple of tracks on is invalid letter department which i actually wrote an a-level english language article about as part of my schooling because the lyricist cedric writes some very kind of unique narratives for some of the songs. He's a very intelligent guy, quite an unusual person. And I do believe that some of the band members were taking quite a lot of drugs at the time when at the drive-in and then the Mars Volta, who was their subsequent band, were active. And yeah, I was able to write a whole thesis on Invalid Litter Department and the, the context of the story of it. It's about a serial killer, I think. I still don't really know. But anyway, <laughs> and... If you go to side two of the record, you have two of my favorite tracks. The first would be Rolodex Propaganda, which was another single which features Iggy Pop. So if you're into Iggy Pop, go listen to that one. And Cosmonaut, which is just, that embodies all of that, the driving for me. It's just powerful drums, powerful bass, post-hardcore sound. It sounds a bit like Fugazi, but the guitars are just kind of screaming in and out of the sort of stereo image. And Cedric, the singer, is just alternately singing and screaming. And it's just, it's a great record. I don't know if I'm selling it very well by just talking about chaos and screaming and stuff, but <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. It's, it's not a guitar player's record in a way. It's about the songs, but I absolutely love it. And it's one of my absolute favorites. And a funny thing about it is that it caused the band to die because they were very much a DIY sort of hardcore punk post-hardcore sort of a band and when they were signed to was it Geffen Records no they signed to Grand Royal which was a, like a subsidiary of Virgin Records in 2000 based off of all the hype and the the record was produced by Ross Robinson and mixed by Andy Wallace and they turned it into an amazing sounding record but a much safer sounding record than it could have otherwise been and I think members of the band didn't like it that much at the time and probably still don't because it just sounded too kind of radio friendly in a way. And because it sounded radio friendly, it got a lot of radio play and they started getting bumped up onto big stages and doing high pressure tours and stuff. And within six or seven months, the band had actually imploded. So the record came out in September 2000. I think it would have been... And I was actually due to attend a show in Cardiff in the UK in March 2001. And that was like the first or second show that they cancelled because they decided to go on a break, which ended up being a break pretty much forever. The band came back about three or four years ago and they released another album, which is really good, but it's not quite hit me in the same way as Relationship, in Command, Relationship of Command has. So this is one of my top five records all time for the impact that it's had on my life and the impact that it's had on me as a, as a musician and the fact that it appeared in a time in my life when I was just a kid and I realized that it was okay to be who I was and how I was. Does that make yeah, that's sense? It, that's, it, it does. And it's like, uh, 
my, my experience as like a teenager was kind of the opposite in the sense that because I was listening to a lot of metal music where you need like a lot of technical proficiency and play all like play and sing almost perfectly <laughs> kind of got exactly the opposite kind of like I don't know like role models I guess in a way but yeah I was like you you sold it like I have the album cute for myself for this afternoon when I'll be doing some other stuff because I think like I've heard the name of the band quite a lot, but I've like never really realized like what Omar Rodriguez like. The, I'm familiar with that name, for example. He pops up a lot in different like, guitar-related things, but I never yeah. realized he was at the drive-in guitar player. Yeah, well. so Omar Rodriguez Lopez and Cedric Bixler, the the singer and guitarist, they went on after at the drive-in to form the Mars Volta, which was this crazy. Mm proggy rocky band went on to win grammys and stuff like that and the three other guys they went off to form a band called sparta which was a much more kind of straightforward standard post-hardcore alternative rock band really really good band as well but yeah. it was interesting because when the two sides of at the drive-in split off to form their different bands afterwards you could totally see the personalities and the characters of the guys transferring into these two projects and while they were both great you know, they both made amazing records. I didn't really understand the Mars Volta and I thought they were too out there. And I thought that Sparta, although great, was perhaps not quite as exciting as At The Drive-In was. And I think it's another case of these five guys who came together at the right time and just made this band that had something special, you know? Like they were the five mm. ingredients to, to light this fire that became At The Drive-In. And, you know, before Relationship of Command came out, they made a couple of amazing records on a much kind of more independent scale so uh Vea and Incasino out that they're, they're both great records much more progressive and much more kind of DIY sounding than Relationship of Command but yeah really really interesting guys and I heartily recommend anyone who's interested to to check them out it's funny as well that you talk about the precision of the metal at the time because their live show was the absolute opposite of that you know, you'd, <laughs> yeah. they'd walk out on stage and Omar Rodriguez, Rodriguez Lopez would be throwing his guitar around his head and they'd be, they'd be everywhere but kind of on the stage. And that inspired me massively. So, great band. Yeah. I was lucky to see uh, them in their peak before they imploded. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot of bands who I would have loved to see, but... It's been years since a lot of those bands have also imploded. So, yeah. But I'm, I'm really curious. Can't wait to actually put this record on and, like, see what what's it's about. Because, I don't know, it kind of sounded exciting. Like, there's a, a Finnish band that I discovered very, very recently. Like, just maybe like a week ago, my friend was playing that music in the car. And I was like, hey, what's this? And it's like this duo from Finland who do this weird hardcore something something I it's really hard to describe like music genre wise but like it's again it's more about the energy than actually like being super accurate in your playing or anything like that then kind of st growing to like that uh, so yeah really excited to check this out and if possible we'll throw well I mean everybody has probably some sort of stream service 
their disposal and a lot of music is on YouTube as well. So you'll probably be able to find this album somewhere. So yeah, go check it out. So we'll get a like a dive into Rich's teenage years, youth, him being at those festivals and stuff like that. So when you listen to the songs, imagine Rich with huge curly hair. That's Yeah, my hair that's back my... in the day, it was... You know what Andy, the guitar geek, looks like now? It was kind of between him and Rabia in terms of size. But <laughs> these days, you know, I'm closer to 40 than I am 30. And I have slightly less hair than I used to, and I can't grow it like that anymore. It's too, uh, it's too much effort. It's too hard. So there yeah, we go. I, I, I just have that. what I have these days. Yeah. yeah but I you can that. imagine, like, what it used to be like walking around in a small town in the West Midlands in England and, and looking very, very different to other people and yeah, getting a lot of abuse for it. My older brother was a goth at the time. He looked like Marilyn Manson. So you can imagine how people used to cross the street as we walked through the town or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then at the driving came along and I realized it's all good. You good. should do this. If you want to do yes, it, exactly. it's your, it's your choice and you know, screw exactly. everybody else. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, thank you for sharing. This was really interesting. And next week, I don't actually like know yet what my pick will be, but we'll see. And I'm not, not going to tell Rich about it either. So that should be a surprise. But Yeah, it should be a surprise. But this was a really hard thing to choose, you know, because this was the yeah. first one for me. And I was like, do I have to pick, you know, the best album ever, my favorite one of all time? And this is definitely up there for me. I, I would never say sure. it's my favorite record now, although it was at the time. But it's like one that it felt like a good way to start because it was, a, you know, it, it changed when I became a man from being a boy previously or something. That record was there, <laughs> if that makes sense. So... Yeah, it was a good one to start yeah. with, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I mean, but I've got like, many, many more cool not, ones to come. Yeah, and I like we're not listing top five albums of our lives. Just I'd say like the ones that have been the most impactful, impactful and really cool. Again, can't wait to like somehow I got excited to listen to it. But first, we need to answer some of your questions and comments, and let's do it right now. Questions and comments. First question comes from Jim Huggins, and again, I need to—I forgot to open myself the questions so I can actually like read them, because on this tiny screen I can see anything. Yeah, Jim Higgins comments on the budget base versus pro base video, where I'm comparing the Harlebenton enhanced base, which is like 300 and something euro, 330 euros or so, to a 1500. Euro Sandberg bass and he comments uh, both uh, are really nice basses but there's no way there's a 1200 euro difference between them sure the quality of the Sandberg might be better but the HP for the price range is a steal you could make some upgrades to the Harley Benton and it would be a great bass and still kind of to your wallet so a classic classic case of uh, law of diminishing returns type of situation here. Yeah, 100%. And I think you also reached these <clears throat> kinds of conclusions for yourself, didn't you, after testing these bases out? Uh, 
I think my conclusion was that if I had the money, I would probably still go for the sandbag just because it's way more solid than like, and after having that uh, Harley Benton for a year or two, like more problems started to present themselves over time. Like when I swapped to a slightly different string set, it didn't really uh, like react to it that well. And some of the pots started to come loose and there was a lot of buzz and noise it would pick up and stuff like that. So, yeah. I don't, I kind of think like you, if if you have the means, I would all pretty much always go for the most expensive one that you can afford, like reasonably at least. Because most of the time you like those little things like or things that seem quite little, like the slightly better build quality and stuff like that, feel those, especially like in a Finnish climate where it's super humid sometimes, sometimes it's super cold and very, very dry. A lot of instruments uh, like really react to that. And then you all of a sudden you need to take your guitar to a luthier to sand the frets or level the frets and sand the fret ends and maybe work on a new knot. And on the cheaper guitars, sometimes you might run into trouble with uh, truss rod where it doesn't really move that well and doesn't adjust the neck that well when even when you turn it. So it's actually difficult to set up the instrument properly and then at some point you usually end up swapping the electronics and stuff like that and it all adds up in the price or the work you have to do and unless you're one of those people who are really well versed in like soldering and swapping the pots and swapping the hardware and stuff like that um, it might actually add up in the price like the price might end up being exactly the same in the end or in a couple of years so that that's my take on this. What, but I also do understand, like, if you're getting like seventy-five percent of the base uh, for three hundred euros, that the twelve hundred euros or was it fifteen hundred euros sandbag is, I totally get it. As well, if you want to get go for the Harley Benton, yeah, yeah, it's interesting the law of diminishing <clears throat> returns, as you say, and we've kind yeah. of touched on it earlier with talking about the different Fender series, you know? Yeah. And it, it's kind of the equivalent of saying, should I get a Squire classic vibe now, or should I go for the Fender player? Or because I've got the money, I could go for the American professional. Yeah. And you might say, yeah, if I get the Squire now, I can always throw different pickups in it later. I can upgrade the hardware. I can get a bone nut put on it if it doesn't come with one already, because the modern ones probably come with a bone nut these days. <laughs> you know, I might upgrade the electronics, blah, 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 blah. Similar with Epiphones and Gibsons. And it's definitely true that if you purely look at the value for money from the price of an instrument, you get more from an, a Harley Benton than you get from a Sandberg on face value. But I think it is a valuable lesson as well that the more you use an instrument, especially the more you professionally use it, sorry, or the more that you use it in the way of studio work or for gigs or something like that, I think that's where the value of more serious instruments really is maximized. You know, yeah. would you have trusted the Harley Benton as a gigging bass, for example? Uh, I've I did use it, <clears throat> excuse me, live several times, and that's where, like, 
some of the issues actually presented themselves. One of them was the noisiness. I don't know if the, there was like a wire detached at some point or something, but it became more noisy, especially if I added any drive to the sound as one. Uh, then sometimes it felt like it didn't react well to traveling, even though it's just like a 15 minute drive from here to the rehearsal space or anything like that. Uh, the intonation became way more poor over time. So I don't know if the frets started to rise like, and like uh, uh, I was actually pretty close to buying like other tapered or something like that bass strings where they're kind of designed in a way, especially like the fifth strings or the lowest B string. Like it was almost, it became almost impossible to keep it well intonated, which was an issue as well. Like little things that kind of started to present themselves over time and yeah it was like I, I mostly played it in like church situations so like small like indonesian issues and such aren't like a huge thing but as someone who just always loves doing the best they can in this situation like it it still annoyed me like it took my focus from creating music with other people to like why is my bass buzzing while somebody else is playing the intro type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah and I mean, you know, both of us have done lots of videos on Harley Benton guitars in our time. They're incredible value for money. They're great instruments as well. But it is a tough question if you have the budget to afford something more expensive. And I kind of feel like if money was no issue, I would probably buy more expensive instruments. But... You know, it's it's all about having companies building guitars at different budgets for different types of players with different needs. As we're seeing yeah. with Fender a lot at the moment. I'm so confused at the, the absolute <laughs> massive number of Fender and Squire guitars. I've got no idea what's best for me. But the the absolute fact is that whether you've got 200 or 300 or 400 or 600 or 800 or 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, there's a guitar for you out there. You've just got to choose yep. what's the best you know, price value for you. It's an interesting point that Jim makes, I think. And the Harley Benton absolutely is a steal, but just be aware that depending on how you wish to use it, it might not be quite as much of a steal as it seems to be on first thought. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, you kind of need to think long-term because if you'll end up swapping like most of the hardware and stuff like that suddenly it's not that cheap anymore mm. and you know you might yeah. have to do that on the sandberg you might have to do that on an expensive yeah, fender definitely. or gibson as well in future sure. but you know the probability of that happening is far more likely with a cheaper instrument like the harley benton than it is with the sandberg based on my personal experience yep definitely all right, moving on to question number two, and this comes from Louis Vasquez, again, a longtime friend of the channel, and he commented on the previous Catholic Fridays episode and said that now that we're talking about NAM, I do have a question. Who should go to NAM? Which is, by the way, an amazing question. Or yet, who can benefit from going to NAM that's not someone with a stall? I bring this up, I guess, because I've always wanted to go to Nam, but I see the event as a place to get connections. But at the same time, 
I'm nobody and I doubt no one will ever even bat an eye, especially since I'm not the gear demo type. Hope this sparks good conversation. Uh, yeah, I think this is a great question. And we have someone who has the industry side view on this. And I have, I guess, the more like a content creator influencer type of view on this. Because, well, yeah. If you already have some thoughts, go ahead, because I'm kind of forming mine as we talk. Yeah, I'm forming mine as well. But um, let's start with who should go to NAM and who can benefit from going to NAM, who's not someone with a with a stall, so not someone who is a brand exhibiting products. I think historically the NAM show was always more of a, a B2B event. You know, it's business only, not open to the public, and it's it's an industry thing. I've been going now for about 10 years, with one or two that I missed, so I've done eight or nine NAM shows. Next year would be my ninth or tenth, whatever. And even in the time that I've been going, so my first was January 2011, it's changed massively in the makeup of people who are there, and also the numbers. Um... Traditionally, Saturday was always the day when you'd get the artists, the rock stars coming into the show. And you'd also often see on the Sunday kind of locals coming in who'd basically slipped the doorman 20 bucks and gone in to see the stuff, <laughs> um, even though it wasn't technically allowed. And in recent years, you've seen more and more people coming into the show who, I don't know if it's right to say they shouldn't be there but they're less directly connected to the industry and the business stuff that's going on at the show. Um, yeah. So you'll see a lot of families. You'll see a lot of people who are just kind of walking around looking at stuff. Friends of brands. Because if you're an exhibitor, if you're a brand, you get a certain number of passes, badges that you can give out to people to attend. There are different ways that you can attend the show. You can be an exhibitor. You can be a buyer. You can be a press person. You can be an artist, etc., etc. And a lot of people have realized that and they'll go to companies and say, hey, can I get in as one of your 20 passes or whatever? And that's where we're starting to see a lot more people. And in the last five years as well, the side that Vlad is coming from, the the YouTuber, the content creator, the influencer side is becoming much bigger as well. And who of them should be at the show? I would say everybody has their own kind of claim to be there, but the core people from the NAM show historically would be people who are making stuff to sell, people who are involved with the manufacturing process, and people who are buying that stuff to then sell it on as dealers or whatever. And that was pretty much it. And I think at some point then brands started to bring famous names who used their stuff. So you'd see, you know, Fender artists coming into demo Fender products, for example. People wanted to see that and then, you know, the word kind of got out and then you know, as social media and as the internet has got bigger and bigger and the January buzz around Nam got bigger, more and more people who are just, you know, guitar fans and love gear wanted to come to the show. And I don't see too much wrong with that. I believe that there should be a cap on the number of people who should be in that building, the convention center in Anaheim, because on the Saturday sometimes it literally takes 10 or 15 minutes to walk from your stand to a bathroom to use it, you know? Yep. Um, 
And this is also something which will change totally when NAM happens next time because of COVID. I believe they will have to reduce the numbers in some way. But I think everyone who has kind of a legitimate basis to go to NAM should be allowed to go. It's just whether or not you have a legitimate interest in doing it. Yeah. What do you think, Vlad? Sure. Um, coming from a, like a YouTuber perspective, I've definitely found both of my trips uh, very useful. But the only thing, like, uh, the, or like the thing I had was that I was already like, so my first name would have been 2019. I was somewhat established as a YouTuber at that point in the sense that I knew a lot of people from a lot of companies. And when they saw me at NAM, uh, I felt like that kind of solidified my like positioned in their minds of like, okay, these are the guys that we work for, or like work with type of thing. But I don't know if I've had, if I would have had the same experience if I didn't know anyone there. Though, then again, and I'm like, I'm about to contradict myself right away because I've also met a lot of new contacts by being there and just hanging out at the stands and talking to people. And that's how I got to know Vola guitars guys, for example, and look where we are now. And so I guess if you have some sort of online portfolio and if you have like an idea to present to companies, like what kind of value you could bring to them, I don't think it matters whether your channel is like fairly small or like, yeah. If if you haven't really done a certain type of thing before that much, as long as you have some something to like, something to show in your kind of online portfolio, and then you are just nice person to talk to. You don't as like, you don't assume too much, so to speak. Then I think the whole trip could be very beneficial as well. But you kind of need to know who you are and what you're doing. And if you don't know that, then it's a bit difficult. But if people, like, if you say, like, hey, this is what I do. And then when the company checks out your stuff later and you are indeed doing what you said you're doing, like, many times that can lead into you like working with them in the future. Yeah, so what what you're saying is that from your perspective, you know, as a YouTuber, the benefit of going to NAM is more about networking, meeting people, making new connections and solidifying connections that you already have. It, one thing that NAM is definitely not good for is making videos. It's probably the worst yes. place on the whole calendar to, to make a, a video of the kind that you would normally make. But I agree that from your perspective, NAM is, it's that one collection in the year when everyone who is anyone from the industry comes together. And in that sense, if you can be there to meet those people, then that's great. But another yeah. part of Lewis's message was, you know, is it going to be good to make connections if I'm just a nobody? And I can comment a little bit about that. I've been on a booth as an exhibitor about, you know, eight or nine times or whatever. And I've got literally thousands of business cards and I've met 
hundreds, probably thousands of people over the years that I've been there. You'll get streams of people coming up to you every day saying, hey, I'm this person, I do this. Here's my card or whatever, here's a CD, whatever. And then they'll go away again. And coming from a brand perspective, it's very hard to keep up with that kind of stuff. It's impossible during the show to work out, is this person for real? Are they actually who they say they are? Are they talented? Do they have a genuine interest to work with us as a brand or not? So that is something which for me has always been a challenge. And I would always prefer it if people come to me having made contact before the show. You know, so Mm. if, if, for example, I'm at NAMM next year in June with Blue Guitar, if you, Lewis, were interested in being a YouTuber and doing a video on a Blue Guitar product, it would be awesome if you would make contact with us before, tell us a little bit about who you are, tell us what you want to do, why you think it would be a good thing, and then when you come and meet us at the show, I can say, ah, that's Lewis, you're the guy who showed this previous interest and had a genuine kind of motivation and desire to work with us. And then I can see that that's going to be much more beneficial to us. I can probably dedicate a bit more time to you at the show. And that would be better, hopefully, for everybody in the long run in terms of the results that would make. I mean, yeah, yeah, on the other hand, I've also made loads of amazing spontaneous connections at NAMM from, you know, an exhibitor side, from a personal side, from a professional side in other ways as well. But that's how I would do it. NAMM is a bit of a minefield, ultimately, and... If you go next year for the first time, Lewis, it will be very, it will be very, very different from any previous NAMM show, I think. So I would say preparation is key, you know, know what you want to achieve by going there, research everything, contact the key people and companies that you'd like to speak to first and just go there and do your thing. Be a nice guy. Spend the first half day getting a feel for it, hanging out with a few people that you already know to gain a bit of confidence and then just go in there and do your thing. And if you do it all like that, I would personally say, yeah, it's right for you to be there. And you should go to NAM. I hope that helps. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm waffling <laughs> quite a lot today. So please stop me if I'm just talking nonsense. No, it, it's mostly made sense to be, I think. Good. <laughs> Mostly, I think all of it made sense. <laughs> you know, say, yeah, it's stuff like I have a like this is a per- personal thing, but like uh, I'm really uncomfortable with like new situations, which also includes meeting new people I have never met before. And I might know the company, but I've never met someone from the company, and then approaching them, hey, well, like, what, how's it going, and like. Trying to get into like small talk and maybe show some interest in what they're doing. It's tough. I'm not good at it. I'm like, I'm just going to say it. I'm like, not like super good at it. I'm great when I know the people already. Then I think that, then I think it's super chill and relaxing and just fun seeing people you already know and like. But yeah, for me, that that's the difficult part. But I have still managed to make a lot of new contacts at NAM as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I felt yeah. like both, both times it's been very beneficial for me to be there. So, yeah, definitely. And just as a final, final point to that, I would say that if anyone watching this is kind of really interested to go to a show like that, but you know, they're not 
thinking about doing this as a professional thing. They're not making videos like Vlad as a career. They're not kind of buying or selling or designing or making instruments or whatever. Don't go to NAMM because it's not the right place. Go to one of the more customer-focused events. So in America, for example, that would be the Sweetwater Gear Fest, you know, the yeah. LA Guitar Show or Amp Show, stuff like that. And here in Europe, the Guitar Summit, things like that where the focus is on the general public coming in, trying out gear, meeting people from companies still and making connections and contacts and friendships, but just from a slightly different viewpoint. At the end of the day, NAM is also about business, you know, so that yeah. also has to get done. As are the songs in the songwriting course. Um, I'm not tired, you're tired, everyone's tired. What? Indeed. So, sorry for pulling out the rug from underneath your feet at the very last moment. <laughs> that, that was good. I hopeless we managed to answer your question in a way that actually like helps you. <laughs> Whether it's <laughs> helping to make your decision not to come or come. Like hope this helps and let us know if you got more questions. And as I mentioned to everyone watching and listening. You can email us your questions as well. And if you so desire, you can just leave like some sort of nickname and you don't have to be there as yourself or part of the show. So you can do that as well. Podcast at catpickstudios.com. Email us there. And before we wrap up for this week, a Catpick Fridays classic weekend watch next. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Video. It's not like you have anything else to do. So this week's Weekend Watch is What Makes This Song Great? Queen. And again, we are mentioning a Rick Beato video. This time he's not in a void. He's doing a take on Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen in his What Makes This Song Great video series. And the one and only Mr. Brian May, the guitar player from Queen, is in this episode as well and he shares some really really cool insight and i mean this was an amazing episode maybe the best one from the series and queen is one of those bands that has kind of transcended i'm gonna say like three generations now so the generation before us was listening to queen we were listening to queen and the teenagers are listening to Queen as well, which is absolutely incredible and also really encouraging because kids are listening to some amazing music. So, <laughs> I don't know, this video yeah. made me happy and appreciate the band even more. Yeah, I really enjoy the Rick Beato What Makes This Song Great series. It's it's just really interesting. There's a lot of great yep. information in there. And, and this one was spectacular. You know, we, we've talked a lot about Rick Beato on this channel and how we enjoy his stuff and the new Gibson signature, blah, blah, blah. But this is just a, a video where, you, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is probably one of the weirdest songs to ever be number one because yeah, it's definitely. so unlike anything else. And, you know, I, I was a huge <laughs> fan of Queen when I was a kid. I still am. Great band. And I read a lot of biographies and did a lot of research into them weirdly because I'm a weird person. And I, I just remember that before Bohemian Rhapsody came out, the record label said, there is no way that we can re release this as a single. It's twice as long as any pop thing. It doesn't have that kind of pop song structure. We can't do it. And then, you know, a uh, uh, pressing of it managed to get out to a record 
uh, sorry, a radio station somewhere, I think in London, they started playing it to death and then suddenly it became this huge thing. But Bohemian Rhapsody is so much more than just a standard pop song. Whether you love it or hate it, I yeah. think even people who hate it can kind of admit that it has all these amazing sections. It's amazingly written and produced and performed. And Rick Beato just takes us through that. He demystifies it. Which in a way is maybe a bad thing because you lose some of that mystery. And I think Brian May alludes to that with Freddie Mercury in part of the interview. But it's so fascinating to just see Rick Beato kind of so passionately, oh, lads disappeared, so passionately going into how that song was produced and performed and also written. And in terms of songwriting, I think it's also an invaluable tool you know, talking about the chord progressions and the harmonizations that Freddie Mercury does. And then we get to the big a cappella part, the, the operatic part in the middle of the song, where if I'm right, there's over a hundred different vocal takes in there. And you yeah. just imagine how on earth did they do that? I mean, we can sit at home today with our, you know, Logic Pro and do whatever we want, but they <clears> were using analog tape, you know? Yeah. They were literally having more... to splice things together and they had limits as to what they could do. And, you know, there wasn't auto-tune for vocals. They just did all that stuff. It was, yeah. it was amazing. And what this video did was bring that a bit more to light. And to get Brian May to talk about it and give it the story from his side was fascinating. And he seems like a great guy. Yeah, he does. Like, I haven't heard him speak that much. And he seemed like a... Very, very cool guy to talk to. And like, he was like very friendly. Like you could tell right away that he probably enjoys what Brick is doing as well. And like, he loves sharing the stories about how all of this was created and stuff like that. And yeah, like the vocal, like vocals, how they were arranged and how they were recorded was incredible. Like, yeah, sure. Cat Big Friday's intro has like 40 of lads singing, but that's super easy nowadays. But like as Brian was is saying in this video, like they kind of had to commit to a lot of those tracks and kind of decide, okay, are we going to keep this take and then like transfer it to another tape and stuff like that. And like, yeah, so much more to think about, like not just like artistically, but like technically and engineering wise as well, like how to make all this happen and how incredibly in pitch they sing. And how good yeah. Freddie was like singing, like doubling or tripling or quadrupling the lines with himself is absolutely amazing. Yeah, doing that with all the technical limitations of the time, it's it's so amazing yeah. to think about. And you know, you know, the story of Freddie coming into the studio with the harmonies worked out from playing the piano and then getting the three guys together to sing it. So, you know, Freddie Mercury, Roger Taylor, the drummer, and Brian May would they would stand there around one mic and do three-way harmonies and then do it again and then yeah. do it again in a slightly different key and then do it again and again and again and just they're so bang on the whole time. Amazing, amazing yeah. musicianship. And I find it very inspiring to watch this video and I find Rick Beato's enthusiasm about it infectious, you know? Yeah. It really yeah. makes me want to go on and, and do stuff like that. You know, I'm pretty sure I'll never reach anything anywhere near Queen's level, but it's just, it makes me want to go out and write songs and do music and listen to music and play music. And what more can you want from a video like this? Yeah, definitely. That, that, that's the thing, like, 
Uh, I've been getting into recording vocals more and more, and like as I've teased many times before, there's a fairly big release coming out. Like it's not my, like my personal release, but I was heavily involved in that, and I did all the vocal production for it, and we stacked so many vocals. Actually, yesterday I was like going through some of the tracks because because uh, of the upcoming release, and it needs to be registered somewhere. Like who was doing what type of stuff, and I just realized that like, some of the songs had like a Fifty harmony track, like vocal harmony tracks in there, and how easy that is to like to do that now. And if like one of those tracks is slightly out of tune, I can quickly fix it and good to go. Compared to the fact that you would have to do those perfectly every single time, and like as you mentioned, three people singing into one microphone, uh, it's kind of depressing but also inspiring like depressing in the sense that i don't think i'll ever reach that level of like vocal mastery or anything like that but on the other hand i have all the tools to do something like this as well like if i get an inspiration to try out some random harmonies and stuff with like huge group vocals i can do it into this microphone right here in my studio so that's pretty amazing as well and yeah this video inspired me as well to go and write something so yeah i think exactly at, at the right. end of the day we both love music and I think everybody watching and listening to Capric Fridays also loves music at the end of the day. And most of us probably also make it and videos like this, I'm pretty sure will inspire the vast majority of us to, to go out and play and make and listen to music. And for me, that is the ultimate thumbs up for this Rick Beato video. Can I do a bonus weekend watch by the way? Yes. I just please, spontaneously do. thought of something because I, this was a great uh, what makes this song great episode by Rick Beato. But because I talked about at the drive-in and relationship of the command, that reminded me that Rick Beato has done a what makes this song great about one-armed scissor off the relationship oh, of really? command album. It's absolutely fascinating. That. You'll hear the out-of-tune vocals and guitars in that isolated because he has access to the oh, multi-tracks and stuff. So check that out if you're interested in at the drive-in. It's another super yeah, episode. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we're going to include a link to that episode as well. So you have a double weekend watch this weekend. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and yeah, that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for watching and listening. And I don't know, I, I had fun and I kind of feel inspired, by, especially like by these talks at the very end about like writing songs and creating music. And I kind of want to go and do that now. So that's cool. And Rich, I hope you you'll get some good rest now, or maybe you'll be working. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm going Hopefully to bed. Be <laughs> I totally get it. And yeah, if you want to support the show, a great way to do that is to get the songwriting course, and there's links to merch and affiliate links to Dome and stuff like that in the we have show merch. notes as well. Well. Catbig Studios has merch. I need to create Catbig Friday's merch, but I haven't really been able to come up with an idea yet. I have a few ideas and I think I'll write them by you and we'll see what we... We need to create something. If you guys have... We need a catchy slogan. Merch, yes. That, that hmm. too as well. If you guys have any ideas like what you would like to see, let us know. For example, emailing us at podcast at catpickstudios.com or commenting on this show on any of the platforms you're listening or watching on. So, yeah. 
Let us know. We would love to hear that. And I'm guessing that was it. If not, I'm sorry if I missed something critical, but I think we'll all manage just fine. I need to figure out what's going on with the StreamYard platform. Too many technical difficulties today. Annoying. But yeah, thank you so much for watching. Listening. Bye, podcast. Bye, podcast. <laughs> <laughs>